Green Earth Radio. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. Today, I continue my countdown to the Weston A. Price Foundation's annual Wise Traditions Conference in November. With five weeks to go until the conference, my guest is Judith McGreary of the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. Plus, our desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to our appetizers and find out what happened this past week in the world of real food. Charles Benbrook, a research professor at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University, has found that GMO crops have led to an increased use of pesticides by 404 million pounds from when they were introduced in 1996 through 2011. The genetically modified seeds were promised to kill weeds without harming the crops, but now herbicide-resistant weed species have popped up. Farmers have to now use more chemicals to destroy their weeds, which is another reason to vote yes on Prop 37 in November. Next, as the cost of corn and soy is rising, cows and feedlots are now being fed all sorts of strange foods, such as cookies, gummy worms, marshmallows, orange peels, and dried cranberries. A beef scientist at Oregon State University believes that cows can digest pretty much anything, it's scary to see scientists and farmers actually believing this. As cows have been fed things they shouldn't eat, like corn and soy, we've had to inject cows with antibiotics and hormones, leading to people getting all sorts of sicknesses from factory farm meat. The only things that cows should be eating is grass and hay as an alternative in the winter. In other news about animals being sickened, clusters of bees in northeastern France were producing honey in odd bluish and greenish colors, it turns out this was due to residue from containers at a nearby M&M plant. Thus, this honey is unsellable and is a big problem for beekeepers with the high bee mortality rate and low honey supply because of the harsh winter. Also, the group Health Canada, in collaboration with the Canada Pediatric Society, Dietitians of Canada, and Breastfeeding Committee for Canada, recommend meat and eggs for transitioning a baby to solid foods. The guidelines acknowledged how meat and fish are traditional first foods as seen with the aboriginals. It's great to see health organizations recognizing the nutritional benefits of meat and eggs. Of course, the guidelines aren't perfect as they recommend tofu and legumes, which aren't good first foods for babies. And finally, beer sales have been on the rise this year. A big part of beer sales going up has been due to craft beer going up 12%. It's great to see more people buying craft beer, which is unpasteurized, and it uses barley instead of GMO corn like the big breweries. Plus, microbreweries are sustainable in their practices, and craft beer just tastes a lot better. And now for our main course, which today is protecting independent family farms. Our food system is heavily controlled by big agriculture. Big ag is responsible for many of our, the environmentally damaging aspects of farming, such as GMOs, pesticides, and feedlots. As consumers, we have the choice and the right not to buy from the major food co corporations and instead buy directly from the farmers. But with the power and connections that Big Ag has, it can be hard at times for independent farmers. Laws are passed which regulate and limit what the smaller farmers can do. Government organizations have been raiding on family farms and private buying clubs, shutting down many of them. It's important that we continue to fight for the indie farms. 
There are certain products we can only get there, such as raw milk. And there are many great organizations that fight for the family farms, such as the Weston A. Price Foundation, the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, and the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. I have Judith McReary, the founder and executive director of the Farm and Freedom Ranch Alliance, to talk with me about fighting for the family farms. Judith is also an attorney and sustainable farmer. Judith, thank you so much for coming on my program. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to have you. As you know, you're part of our Weston A. Price Wise Traditions Conference speaker series. Um, this is a continuing thing that we're doing every week until the conference. And certainly what the Farm and Freedom Ranch or Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance does is certainly very appropriate for both for the conference and also for what we discuss on our show. Weston Price is a fantastic organization. I was actually involved in it for several years before um, we founded the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, and where you know the, the missions overlap or, or are complementary, not so much overlap, but are complementary. I mean, Weston Price teaches people about what foods are good for them, about traditional diets and how they can improve their health through diet, and what Farfa focuses on is how can we make sure people still have access to those foods. And how can we make sure that the laws and regulations don't interfere with people's ability to access these foods that they so desperately need for their health? So how did you first get Farfa started? It was back in 2006, and the, um, I'm, I'm based in Texas. I live here, and I have a small farm here. And Texas Animal Health Commission proposed regulations to start making the National Animal ID System, or NAIS, mandatory. Uh, this was a huge, huge, over you know, intrusive, burdensome program that would have required electronic tagging and tracking of virtually all livestock. Um, and so, when we saw this, I, I read the regulation. I went and read the whole, all the documents, um, and I realized that this could be just devastating for small livestock farms. I mean, there are a lot of small livestock farms that have gone out of business. And we started asking around, asking other organizations, are you fighting this? What are you doing about this? What's happening? And frankly, not much was happening. Groups were watching it. A lot of groups had sort of said, oh, it's a done deal. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, And there really wasn't anybody fighting to stop this. And so um, I and a group of other farmers and ranchers in Texas, and um, we recruited some folks from out of the state, um, got together and formed Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. That's great. And so now, before you started the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, you were an attorney and a farmer? Yes. So I was I was practicing law, and my husband and I have a small farm, and um, he does most of the day-to-day work. Um, I kibitzed on the side. Um, and we had really just started. It was uh, At that point, we had just been farming about a, two years, I think, at that point. Mm-hmm. And did certain did your legal background help a lot with getting the organization started? My legal background has definitely helped. Um, it's very handy to be able to read regulations and laws and feel confident that I know what they mean. To be able to understand how the administrative law system works and how agencies function and, and the ins and outs. Um, I do want to say, you know, a lot of people I think feel like they can't be activists unless they're lawyers. You know, it's like, oh, you were a lawyer. That's why you managed to get things done. And that's not true. I mean, yes, it was useful. 
and I can play, I can certainly play a certain role that other people without legal training can't. But a lot of what we've done has, frankly, had very little to do with my legal training. And um, I've learned a lot from non-lawyers in this process. Oh, certainly. I certainly don't have to be a lawyer. Otherwise, if you do, uh-oh, I guess uh, <laughs> I should stop what I'm doing if that's the case. But um, but no, not at all. But I mean, certainly it's good. And certainly there is a legal organization involved with the Freedom for Farmers and for Consumers to Buy Food, which is the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Do you do a lot of activities with them? I'm on the board of the Legal Defense Fund, and I do some work with them as well. It's a great group. And so the role for the Legal Defense Fund is the situation where farmers actually, you know, are increasingly facing actual enforcement actions by the government. You know, they try to do something, either the government says it's illegal or that they haven't crossed their T's and drawn their I's properly or, you know, there's all sorts of scenarios. And what the Legal Defense Fund does is provide a legal defense for when, um, you know, the government comes knocking on their door. Possibly even more importantly, Legal Defense Fund is very good about providing legal advice before that point. So farmer members can ask the lawyers, you know, can, can have meetings with the lawyers with the Legal Defense Fund to try to set up their farm in ways and their activities in ways that hopefully avoids having the government come knocking on their door in the first place. So that's a really important piece. Um, and, of course, like all of the organizations, the Legal Defense Fund also involves consumers because there are just too few farmers out there. And so all of the organizations rely heavily on people who are not farmers but who care about this kind of food to be involved. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the current activities that the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance is involved with? So we're working on a range of issues right now. One of the big issues that we're working on, like many other groups, are is the issue of genetically modified foods, genetically engineered foods, and trying to get word out about the problems with them and get people active in different ways. Um, at this exact moment, of course, there's the Proposition 37 in California, which we're supporting for labeling of GMOs. And we're also working you know, in other parts of the country and helping people develop grassroots um, work in their states on how to build the power you need to work on, to, to, to make changes on the GMO front. We also work on raw milk issues. Um, but Texas is um, probably our strongest base there. We're working on changes to the raw milk laws here in Texas to allow legal sales at farmers markets. And we provide, in that process, we've developed a lot of materials and we work with people in other states providing materials so that they can work on it um, because the raw milk laws are so heavily state-based. We work on some farm bill issues, trying to make some changes at the federal level. We are keeping an eye on FDA and what sort of regulations they're doing under the Federal Food Safety Modernization Act. Um, and then, again, we're sort of playing in Texas an active role in, in supporting people in other states on how to get local foods bills of different types um, at the state level. So these are things like cottage food bills that allow people to sell low-risk foods directly to consumers without being regulated, and just other bills that are needed to help farmers and farmers' markets succeed. And it, it can get very nitpicky. It's very technical, but they're important because these are the things that are barriers to farmers growing and, and expanding their operations. Certainly a lot of great things in the works to talk about. So first I'd like to start with Proposition 37, which I live in California, so certainly... 
that one it's big for me, but I have noticed that it's big for pretty much organizations all over the U.S. I mean, certainly Weston Price, even from people outside of California are supporting it and other organizations. And I know certainly a big reason that a lot of organizations are supporting it, even ones outside of California, is because everyone is saying from other states, when Prop 37 passes in California, then other states will follow and they will have similar propositions on their ballot. So is that something that after Prop 37 passes in November that you see yourself getting involved with in Texas is starting a similar proposition? So I'd like actually to back up and say that I think there's actually a very pragmatic impact that will happen if Proposition 37 passes, regardless of any other state's laws Mm -hmm. changing. And that is these food companies source, manufacture, and distribute their food to national distribution chains. They don't source, you know, they, they don't make food for California. You know, Kellogg's doesn't make cereal for California. It makes cereal and it ships it all over the country. So if these companies have to label the foods that are sold in California, it is going to force them, in practical terms, to either completely revamp their processing and distribution chains, label nationally, or change their formula so that they're using non-GMO foods and they don't have to label and so I think there's going to be a huge effect literally just from Proposition 37 passing. I mean, just just that, even if no other state passes another law, there will be an effect from, for, from Proposition 37. As far as other states, I think certainly having California pass a proposition requiring labeling gives a huge boost to efforts in other states. The methods are going to have to differ state by state. Not all states have the um, initiative, the ballot initiative method. So, for instance, Texas does not. It's it's just legally impossible for us to get a ballot initiative and bypass the legislature. And there are quite a few states, you know, so it's a mix. So, you know, whether whether we're talking about working on state bills or we're talking about ballot initiatives or, you know, the mechanism, um, I do certainly see um, Proposition 37 giving a big boost to other states' efforts. And absolutely, we'd be working on things like that. That's a good point about how Prop 37 can affect the operations of all these food companies across the U.S. So something I wonder is, do you think that if and, well, when, because I I believe Prop 37 will pass, that a lot of these companies, they'll label GMOs and it'll be easier to just put it on all the packages nationwide. So we'll see some products where even if you're not in California, it'll be labeled. Exactly. I mean, I I think that... If you talk about, it's interesting, the company's argument against Proposition 37 has weighed, has been very heavily the idea that it'll make food more expensive. It's too expensive to label, which is absurd given that they label already. You know, there's all sorts mm-hmm. of things that are labeled. Um, and as far as GMOs, they already label for other countries. I mean, so in Europe, if they sell in Europe, if they sell in China, if they sell in Russia, it has to be labeled. So... The, the real argument, I mean, the, the real thing here is they're worried that consumers won't like the label, that consumer, American consumers will stop buying things with a GMO label on it. And so, again, if, you know, if, if Proposition 37 passes and they have to label in California, they're faced with a hard choice. They either have to label and distribute nationally, and, you know, people in Connecticut are likely to see that same label, um, or they're going to have to do what they do in other countries, which is start sourcing non-GMO. 
So these companies in other countries, they actually source non-GMOs? In, the, in Europe, very little GMO food is sold. Most of the food sold in Europe is non-GMO because it's required to be labeled and because you know, the companies know that these folks don't, that the, the customers don't want GMO food. So since it would have to be labeled, they simply don't use GMOs. Interesting, yeah. And they try to say that there's no no problems in the safety of uh, of GMOs, yet if uh, if there weren't, then they wouldn't be afraid of being labeled. So obviously it's uh, it's clear that <laughs> there is well, something I mean, to be afraid of. Sorry, I was going to say, everywhere else, I mean, think about advertising and marketing in this country. You know, who doesn't want their name on something? Right. <laughs> these, these companies plaster their names on everything, every chance they get. If they really thought GMOs were so good, wouldn't they want a label on the food saying, brought to you by the latest in biotechnology from Monsanto or DuPont? This is what they do if they really thought this was such a great product. Exactly. And the other argument they try to make is that it'll be expensive to change their labeling, but companies change labeling all the time. So th- the, that argument doesn't fly either. Ex- the, the expense is, they know, is, is what happens afterwards. They know when they stick the GMO label on it, people will start change their buying habits. That's the real expense. But that's the market at work. The market is both consumers are supposed to make informed choices about what they want and companies are supposed to respond to those informed choices. Exactly. And that's the good point to bring up is choice is that because the No on 37 campaign is also trying to make this sound like they'll be forced to have GMOs. And there is no forcing. No no freedoms are being limited. But right now the one freedom that I do see being limited is the consumers that we don't have the freedom to know. Well, I mean, it's a bit like a company saying, well, we should have the freedom to put, you know, sell you rice with arsenic in it and not label it, which, by the way, they're doing. But, right, uh, another maybe issue. I should do a different on. example. You know, but, yeah, we should, be able to, we should have the freedom to put rat poison in ice cream and not label it. We have the freedom to do that. Excuse me? Yeah, exactly. You, you, you have the freedom to sell things, but you don't have the freedom to hide what you're selling. That's called fraud. It's called deceptive advertising. That's not freedom. Oh, absolutely. Completely agree. And another issue in food freedom is the freedom to have fresh raw milk, which you had talked about earlier. What are currently the laws in Texas regarding raw milk? So in Texas, um, you can be licensed to sell raw milk. There's a grade A raw for retail license with pretty extensive regulatory requirements. But after jumping through all those hoops, you can only sell on the farm. So the agency requires people to drive to the farm to pick up their milk, which, by the way, Texas is a really big state. The farms aren't necessarily close to the cities. Talking long driving. So what we've proposed in Texas is simply, it's very simple. If a farm's already licensed to sell on the farm, they should be able to bring it to a farmer's market or an agreed-upon drop point or however they and the consumer wish to make arrangements. You know, it's still the same safety standards. It's still the same, you know, oversight. It's simply rather than having someone schlep their way to the farm, the farmer should be able to bring it in. It shouldn't be difficult, but given the politics over raw milk, um, it's an incredibly controversial attempt. Um, last, we, we brought the bill first in 2011, and I was told that was the most controversial bill in the Public Health Committee. Wow. 
Yeah, it's a dubious distinction. Um, and we're going to try again, and we're going to keep trying, because it is a, just a fun, you know, a basic common sense principle, and we need to win on it. And ultimately, we will. It may take a few tries. They do, but certainly I appreciate the effort. I mean, I think just, you know, the continuous effort, I think that's what you have to do. And I mean, it all makes sense because if they're buying it on the farm, there's no different buying it at a farmer's market. It's from the same people. And it just, I mean, I find it kind of funny that people are, you know, the issue of health safety. I mean, that what's so scary about uh, about some fresh milk? Uh, The reality, and this is, you know, raw milk really is this... um, uh, the, the local foods movement encapsulated. I mean, all of the issues almost uh, sort of get captured in this one piece. You know, any food can make you sick. That's the reality. There's no such thing as a food that has never made anyone sick. I, I, I've gone through the CDC data. You would not believe what people get sick off of. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the, the opponents point and say, oh, so-and-so got sick from raw milk. It's like, yes, and... You know, 10 million people drink raw milk, according to CDC data. The fact that there are a handful of illnesses is horrible for people who are seriously ill. I mean, the ones that, the, the small handful of people who get very sick, that's a horrible experience for them individually. But that's true of every food, every single food out there. Chicken soup makes people sick. You know, I can, Texas, two cases of, of illness from chicken soup, you know, it's, it's got to be a situation where we look at it and go, well, what's really a high risk? When you look at the data, when you look at the numbers, what's really risky? And what we see is raw milk certainly isn't there, um, and local foods generally aren't there. You don't see high risk associated with food that's bought at farmer's markets. So from just a, a, a sort of standard you know, analysis of economics, of, of politics, where do you focus your regulations? Where do you focus limited government resources on regulating and inspecting and, you know, enforcement? You'd focus it on high risk. And so that's why, you know, this raw milk thing is, is so important, aside from the importance just of raw milk itself. It's, it's, this pro- it's, it's the standard bearer on these issues. It's where we need to win to say we need to inject this sort of common sense back into policymaking and demand that policymaking be based on rational decisions based on data, not based on big industry, you know, trumpeting um, baseless fears. And certainly of the foods that people have gotten sick, we should actually take a look at all the list of all of the people that have gotten sick over the pasteurized milk. No one ever brings that up comparing to the people who have gotten sick over the raw milk. Exactly. Again, any food can make people sick. And what we see when you go into the data is there are fewer outbreaks from pasteurized milk. When they do happen, they tend to be larger and more severe, um, which is a pattern that makes sense when you think about the nature of pasteurized milk, how broadly it's distributed, the centralized distribution of it, which is similar, again, to so many foods in the industrial ag system, um, and this fact that you know once it gets contaminated, there are absolutely no checks. There, there's no, no ability to... Um, no protection points from af- if it's contaminated after the pasteurization process. So, so yeah, I mean, every, again, any food can make people sick. What we have to do is say there's got to be you know reasonable balances between government's role in protecting people and 
the re- reality that you can't protect against everything and people need a level of freedom of choice to make their own decisions about what they put in their bodies. And another thing about raw milk, because I had Mark McAfee on my show a few weeks ago, is that because there's so much, so many organizations going after the raw milk, these dairies are the cleanest. I mean, I don't think there's any pasteurized dairy that's as clean as something like organic pastures because they have to be very careful. And the major raw dairies, I mean, they do their own inspections before the CDC comes to them. So they have the highest levels of cleanliness and also they have the most humane ways of treating the cows of any dairies. So, I mean, really, if you go to these raw dairies, I mean, I always recommend certainly learn about the dairy. It's best to, like to visit it and learn about their practices. But, I mean, I find that they have just the most humane ways of treating these animals of any dairies. And I'd, I'd agree with you with, with a little bit of a caveat in terms of, I mean, certainly the majority of the raw milk dairies I know are, are certainly are amazing. They're, they're amazingly clean. They're amazing. They, they do a wonderful job with animal health and animal welfare. But I don't think, but that's still an odd thing. I, and I'll be blunt. I mean, there have been a couple of raw milk dairies where I've sort of talked to the farmer and gone, hmm, I think you could improve things. <laughs> and people do need to know their farmer. You, you need to know your farmer. You need to take responsibility for your for what you're putting in your body, um, particularly in situations, you know, again, this very state to state. So some states have very extensive regulatory provisions. Some states do not. Um, some states people are doing cow shares, which are unregulated, and you need to know your farmer. Um, you know, that, that's a decision the individual makes that instead of having government regulation, they're going to trust the relationship with their farmer, but then you have to have that relationship and not simply say, oh, they do raw milk, I'm sure everything's okay. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah, that's what I was saying was that I think you need to know about what kind of practices they do. And that's the thing for me is I've started um, to actually only only buy raw milk from ones where they will put up their practices. And also I do plan at some point to to visit these farms as well to see what goes on because um, I'd gotten sick not too long ago and a lot of people had blamed on the raw milk, which there's still no uh, no evidence that it was that. But it, it did teach me afterwards because with a couple of them, they I didn't really know much about the farm. And I've decided that I don't think I'm going to have those anymore because I don't know anything about their practices. And, you know, as, as great as the stores are that sell them, um, it's not about, you know, who the stores trust, but it's about what I trust personally because ultimately everything – you have to really look at all of the information yourself and decide what's best. And that's one of the, again, the arguments both for raw milk and in local foods that we keep, you know, we keep trying to explain to the legislators and the regulators is the advantage of it is the transparency and the accountability. So, you know, if you bought, for instance, a, a gallon of milk off the grocery store shelves, you know, pasteurized, you know, go, go get your pasteurized homogenized low-fat milk off the grocery store shelves, you know, if you get sick, it's going to take a long time for them to figure out where that milk came from. Or, you know, look at the tomato outbreaks, look at how, the meat. I mean, all of these things. The common theme is it takes a long time to trace the problem because the distribution systems and the processing systems are so centralized. This is what we're talking about with Prop 37 and, and food manufacturers. They don't, it's not like it goes from farm A to processing plant A to store A. <laughs> you know, it goes from farm A to processing plant a through Z, you know, which collects products from dozens, if not hundreds of farms, 
it all gets mixed together and then it gets shipped out to hundreds of stores, quite probably under multiple brand names. I mean, this is how our food in the mainstream is handled. So you wouldn't know. You get sick off of something from a grocery store many times. You don't know what to avoid next time. You don't know who to hold accountable. If you do get sick from local foods, which is a very rare occurrence, you know, we have very few reports of it, but you'd know. You'd know it was Farm A sold at, and, and maybe through the, if you did it from a local co-op, you know, sold at Co-op A. You'd know, and you'd be, you'd, you'd know who to avoid. You'd know who to go tell. Hey, here was, there was a problem with this. There's an immediate transparency and traceability um, involved in it, which is a major benefit in food safety as well as food quality. Absolutely. So, we'll continue with Judith McGreary of the Farm and Ranch. Freedom Alliance, but first we have to have a word from our sponsors. The Appropriate Omnivore is sponsored by To Your Health Sprouted Flour. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Go to www.organicsproutedflour.net and shop today. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be let us be your sprouted grain and flour source, certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. That's www.organicsproutedflour.net or toll-free 877-401-6837. Wise Traditions Conferences bring a world of nutrition information to the health professional and health-conscious consumer, and the conference meals and exhibit hall reflect our dietary principles. Join us this September 15th to 16th, Buffalo, New York, for our second regional conference, or November 9th to 12th in Santa Clara, California, for our 13th annual international conference. Learn and grow in wellness. See more details on westonaprice.org. And we're back with the appropriate omnivore. My guest today is Judith McGreary of Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. We were previously talking about some of the issues that the FARFO is involved with. Now, the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, this is a nonprofit organization which anyone can get involved with. Judith, tell us a little about how one can become a member and get involved with your organization. So, you know, you can become a member on our website, which is farmandranchfreedom.org. There's a join button, um, and people can join at all kinds of levels. We have a free email list that people can also sign up for action alerts. And even more than that, and um, particularly if we're sort of looking ahead of, to the Western Price Conference and what I'll be talking about there, is the question of being active. Now, and I love members. I'm not trying to <laughs> trying to bypass mm-hmm. that too quickly. Memberships are important because they provide the financial resources we need. They provide numbers. When we talk to legislators, we can say how many members we have. But ultimately, the strength of our movement comes from people being active and outspoken on their own behalf. And a lot of what we've been talking about so far, at least some of it, has been you know, voting with your fork, you know, how, to, how to shop for good food and think about farmers and um, get access to it. But that's not voting. I mean, I love it, and it's vital that people do it. But it, you know, to really make change, it actually takes both voting and staying involved after voting. So one of the things we do for our members, and uh, you know, what I'll be doing at the Western Price Conference, 
is teaching people how to be effective um, when they want to get involved. Because everyone's short on time. Everyone has a lot of other things they could be doing with their time and energy. And so if they're going to get active and if they're going to try to help the local foods movement, it, they want it to be something where they, their, their time is well used, that they aren't beating their head against the wall. And I think a lot of people feel that anytime they try getting involved in policy work, they are beating their head against the wall. You know, people get frustrated with the system and they think they aren't making a difference and then they give up. So one of the things we're doing um, on our website, we're about to, we're in the process of revamping our website and we'll have a new and improved section on taking action and, you know, tools that people can use and that can help people become effective. And what I'll be talking about at the Western Price Conference is a, a, a workshop on how to be effective and how you can get active and make good use of your time and have an impact. That's good. And so that's um, – can you kind of explain a little more of what you'll be speaking about at the Wise Traditions Conference? So I'll be speaking um, – we'll, we'll honestly, we will probably change things around a little bit depending on exactly who's there. You know, when I run these workshops, we often start the workshops by saying sort of who's here and what's your experience or what is your interest. So there's flexibility in it um, because different people come in with different levels of knowledge. It, the, I do try covering now all of these sorts of workshops. First of all, just some basics. Understanding um, the thought process of organizing. Often people jump to the stuff that's very visible, like I want to hold a protest rally. And this is where people can spend huge amounts of time and get no results. And then they get frustrated and they get upset and they say, well, we did this wonderful thing and nothing happened. And so, you know, part of it is, is stepping back and going, okay, so how do you plan a strategy? How do you, if you want to get a raw milk bill passed in your state, if you are in a state where it's illegal or in Texas and it's limited, you know, and you want to improve raw milk access, what are the steps? How do you think through that strategy? How do you build coalitions? How do you build alliances so you improve your strengths? Um, and talking a little bit about things that people also, like I said, focus on, how to lobby, how to talk to legislators, um, how to be effective when you walk in and you're talking to your elected officials. Because there's a skill to that. It's not complicated. It's actually not hard. But there's, you know, there's skills and, and pieces involved to it. Right. In addition to the Wise Traditions Conference, I know you'll also be speaking at the Acres USA Conference in December. I'll be. Uh, I have a booth there. I'm not sure if I'm speaking. Oh, okay. But you'll, be, you'll be involved with the booth. I, mean, I, talk, with the I might be. We had talked about doing like a legal and policy panel, but I don't mm. know if that's happened. Oh, okay. Right. And also, I know you also have your own conference, which uh, took place a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so we do a conference every year in September. And um, this year, we did a full day on activism workshops. And that went really well. I learned first. I learned a lot. It was the first time we've done a full day on it, and I learned a lot of lessons to improve next time. But people came away with a lot of enthusiasm, and you know, one of the nicest things I was told, and this is what we hope for for on any of this activism work. And when I do any workshop, whether it's a two-hour or an all-day thing, a woman came up to me afterwards and said, "You know, I wasn't really planning to be active. I came because I was keeping, you know, my partner company." You know, just we wanted, she was going out of town, wanted to travel. 
And um, so I came to keep her company. She goes, but I'm really inspired now. I'm going to get active. It, you made it, you know, it was clear. I understand. And I can see how I can get involved. And that was, you know, that's what I'm hoping for, is for people to come through and go, this isn't that hard. Yes, there are things I need to know. There are things that will help. It's not just, you know, it's not something you can just sort of blindly batter your way through. But it's not hard. People can do it. And you can make a difference and become involved and make our system work again. Because that's, again, a lot of us have gotten turned off because we think the system just doesn't work. And the truth is, a lot of times we don't even try to make the system work. It takes people being involved to make it work. And in addition to um, your involvement running the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, you also have, I know, a board of members. So what's the background of kind of what role do the other people on the board play in the overall organization? So boards play very different roles in all sorts of organizations. Um, in FARFA, my board is a policy board. They set our policies and decide what issues we're working on and what positions we're taking on those issues. Um, and it's an unusual board in a lot of ways compared to a lot of nonprofits because if you look at our board, pretty much everyone on it are either working farmers or people who have direct relationships with working farmers. So we have, like I said, several working farmers. We have a guy who does consulting for sustainable agriculture and works day in, day out with farmers. We have a vet who you know, works day in, day out with farmers. It's somewhat unusual on a nonprofit board, but it's something, you know, we decided very early, you know, when FARFA was created, that we wanted an organization that really understood the day-to-day -day lives of farmers. Um, because it's a very different perspective, no matter how sympathetic people are to the local foods movement and how much they care. It's different when you're the one who, who does the day-to-day -day work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Everyone involved is a farmer. So what kind of uh, items can we find on your farm? So we've got a whole variety. Um, our main our main product is grass-fed lamb, and we've got a, a flock of sheep. Um, we are also starting to do, or will be starting to do, grass-fed beef. We've just bought our first breeding cattle. We have horses just for fun. They're what I call our pasture ornaments. <laughs> um, we've got a few poultry. We do laying hens and a few turkeys. Um, and then we've got the usual assortment on any farm of, you know, dogs and cats and, you know, critters, guinea hens. You know, ra random creatures. Um, we do not have goats, and we do not have pigs. Um, but other than that, we cover the spectrum pretty well. Right. And for, nor for people to get the food in your farm, do they need to uh, go to the farm to buy it, or do you sell it like, at markets? On our farm, we sell it. Well, people can always come to the farm, and we welcome that. Uh, we do sell at a couple of local farmer's markets, um, one in Austin and one in a small town outside Austin called Mainer. So, and again, my husband does the heavy, you know, the heavy lifting right. on that in terms of time. Bless his heart. Um, but it's the farmers' markets are fun um, for the farmers. It's exhausting. It's a long day. That's something people often don't think about. As um, you know, for a farmer coming into farmers' markets, that may be an hour and a half, two hours drive. You know, the day starts at 4 a.m. <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to get up, get everything loaded, drive down, get set up. Um, you know, then you spend hours talking to people, then you pack everything up and drive back. It's an incredibly long day, but it's a fun day because you see other farm. You, you get a chance to chat with other farmers. You get a chance to catch up with people. 
you get a chance to really interact with the people that we're raising this food for. Um, and that's what keeps us, that's what keeps us farming. I mean, we wouldn't, uh, for a variety of reasons, but particularly that, I think just we wouldn't sell into the mainstream cha- chains. I mean, even aside from money, there'd be nothing to keep us in this. You know, the reason we raise food the way we do, the reason we farm the way we do, ultimately is because of the people we're, we're providing food to. And so having that connection and having that sort of weekly, you know, face-to-face contact is really energizing for the farmer as well as, I hope, for the consumer. And I imagine a farmer's market in Austin, Texas is a great place for what you do. Yes, Austin's got some great markets. Austin has, Austin has a great local foods community. There are a lot of chefs who are very passionate about local foods. There's a lot of consumers, so we have some very thriving markets. And we've got a pretty good concentration of farmers. So again, you know, there's an, it, you always know that if you want to talk over something, you've hit a problem on your farm, and you, you want to, you know, it's like, well, what the, you know, what do I do about this? You know, there are folks to talk about it with um, in this area, which is really helpful. Absolutely, Austin does have a great food scene because, in fact, the winner of Top Chef last season, Paul Key, he's has a restaurant in Austin, and there are a lot of great sustainable food companies. In fact, we had. Jason Jones, the president of Vital Farms, he was on our show several months back. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, Vital Farms is here. Coyote Creek Organic Feed Mill is here, and they sell world's best eggs. Um, we've got, you know, we actually have an event. Farfa has this wonderful event that was set up by our farmers. In fact, I shouldn't say it's our event. We happen to be the beneficiary of it. But there are four farms in Austin that are literally within walking distance of each other. They're a few blocks apart in, in the city. And so every year they hold a farm tour, East Austin Urban Farm Tour, and people can, you know, take tours of each of the farms and, you know, you walk a few blocks to the next farm. And at each there are, you know, three or four or five local chefs and local breweries, people making wines or sake or vodka here in Texas, um, providing food and drink at each of the farms. And it's really spectacular how the wealth that we have available you know, the, the number of chefs, the number of, you know, um, alcohol providers, the number of, you know, people who are who, who want to come look at these farms and get involved in it. Um, it, it again, it's sort of one of these inspiring sort of like, oh, yeah, this is why I do this <laughs> moments. It's, and you need those. You need those in this movement. Mm-hmm. And people can tour your farm? Absolutely. We, much less much less high scale and much less planned. But yes, people are always welcome. You know, give us a call, let us know, and, and schedule something and come on out to our place. I see. So we, kind of an unofficial, not so much a major farm tour as much as the other ones, but people call no, and yeah, we, tour it. We, 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 don't do a, we don't do a high tour, but we have, you know, we, often, we, we have an open door policy. Um, and I think that's important for any farm. To have that's in the local foods movement to have an open door policy. I will say, and this is something we had to we had to backtrack on um, after our first year or two was to tell people, no, you do have to schedule a time uh-huh. because we had people who will. I mean, oh, I'm stopping by. Oh, can I take you know? Can I take two hours out of your day and four? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I finally, my, Mike was good with that. I finally drew a line from plan with us. We're, it's not because we have to hide anything. I'm not changing anything ahead of you coming, but we do need to plan it. Yeah, you do have a farm to operate. Can't, <laughs> the job isn't just showing people around all day. Exactly. But, but I do think, and I'd encourage everyone, you know, you want your farm to have an open-door policy. And if a farmer doesn't, that's a reason to be concerned. 
Absolutely. Like what we were talking earlier about knowing how raw dairy farms, how they operate. I mean, it's best if you can visit the raw dairy farm and see what they do. And in addition to raw dairy, and we also talked about GMOs, I know another big issue with uh, food safety for consumers is uh, food safety bills, which I know your organization works with. So what's uh, going on now with like with food safety bills for uh, for the U.S. and for individual states? So uh, food safety is really the hot issue, and I think it's going to be the hot issue. I mean, it's what underlies, you know, the raw milk issue, and it's it's going to be um, the the banner of the opposition for to local foods. Is they're going to use food safety as as a way to try to um, hurt the small farmers. Frankly, in my opinion, a lot of a lot of the industry guys. There was a federal food safety bill passed two years ago. Um, there'd been a lot that went around the internet. Some of it wasn't accurate. Some of it was. Um, but ultimately, we did get through um, a coalition of organizations working together, got a, the Tester-Hagen Amendment, which exempted small-scale direct marketing farms from several of the provisions of the bill, the ones that we thought were going to be the most harmful for small farmers. But one thing people, you know, often don't realize is the bill is only one piece of the process. There then is the rulemaking process. So the bill sets out, think of sort of a, a framework, a structure, and the agency is directed to come build the walls. You know, after the house has been framed, now the agency is supposed to come build the walls. And that's FDA, the agency in charge of implementing the Federal Food Safety Modernization Act. And they haven't done it. Um, they've sat on it. They've written regs. Uh, none of us have seen them because you aren't able to see the regs before they're formally proposed. And they're just sitting on them, presumably because of political, you know, um, election year politics. And actually, there have been a couple of organizations that have now sued FDA to try to force them to move ahead with the process. Um, I'm not in such a hurry. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with FDA sitting on those regs. But I do understand those groups are coming from the perspective of, the Federal Food Safety Modernization Act was supposed to improve food safety of much of the food being sold, for instance, in the grocery stores. And there are some very real food safety problems with those, and these groups want to see these regs move ahead. So we'll, uh, to some extent at the federal level, it's a, we'll see what happens. You know, when, what happens with that lawsuit? What happens with FDA proposing these regs? Um, FARFA will absolutely, once FDA does get around to proposing the regs, whether it's next week or six months from now, you know, we will be active in looking at those regs, figuring out whether they properly um, exempted out the small-scale farmers, the inten- you know, implemented the intentions of the Tester-Hagen Amendment, and what else, you know, what, what potential problem points there are, and we'll let people know. And, and there will be a public comment period where people can get involved by submitting comments to the agency. So that's the federal side. At the state side, it's all but impossible to track each individual state. I mean, that, that would That's require 50, very so. big staff. We, we kind of, I don't, and also I don't think we have time in the program to uh, <laughs> we don't. talk about each but, state. But what I'd, what I'd say just in sort of short terms is people, they're great opportunities for getting involved. There's a um, very positive movement. Actually, I believe California just adopted a cottage foods bill. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of good openings to try to um, create, you know, exemptions or reduced regulations for local foods. Um, and you also need to be watchdogging because the agencies very often at the state level are not friendly to local foods either. And so it's important to get involved with a state-level organization um, and, and 
be helping watchdog those regulations and get active if there's a threat to the local farmers markets or farm stands. Mm-hmm. Well, that's certainly a good point you bring up about there's a lot of steps to when these bills get passed. So certainly I see right there how the uh, the legal background uh, comes into effect. I can certainly explain because a lot of times when we see these headlines about these bills being passed, people don't understand what's involved with it or how long it takes to go into action. So certainly appreciate and, that. Absolutely. It is a process. And that is the advantage of organizations. I mean, People can do a lot on their own, and I don't, you know, ever want to, you know, denigrate what one person can do because I've seen individual people make an immense difference. It helps to plug into organizations because organizations, hopefully, you know, good, you know, will have um, people with specific expertise in laws or policymaking who can help you with guidance, who can help you with understanding where in the process it is, and who simply bring people together because it really is one person can make a difference, and I've seen it. But we are far more effective when we work in a communal fashion and when people get together and work on an issue together. And that's where real political power comes from. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in addition to the Weston A. Price Foundation and the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, what are some other good organizations that you, you like, do you think are good to be involved with? Um, Food and Water Watch is an excellent consumer-oriented organization. Um, they're one of the groups that actually, they, they, their focus is consumers and consumer safety, mm-hmm. but they really pay attention to the smaller farms and where food comes from. They believe that it's not just what's in the food, but where the food comes from. I have a lot of respect for them. Me too. I had um, interviewed them for my blog last year when they were at the, uh, the Green Festival in Los Angeles. Great organization. Yeah, they're great folks. Um, the National Family Farm Coalition is a very, very good group, comes up with some very good policy statements. If you want to understand the su- problems with subsidies and what needs to actually be done with subsidies, NFFC is the group to go to. Um, and they have a lot of member groups at the state level. So, again, people in different states can look and see if one of the NFFC member groups perhaps is in their state. Um, for folks in the Western Mountain States, the Western Organization of Resource Councils is fabulous community organizing group. And I'd encourage folks to actually check out their website. Um, it's WORC.org. They have a section on community organizing, and they have some great how-tos. Um, I, I actually borrow from them a great deal when we're doing activism workshops. Um, they have some great materials to help you understand how to be effective and how to um, what's involved in thinking through uh, making change at the political level, at the policy level. So those are all groups that I think very highly of, um, and we do a lot in coalition work with all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those are all good groups to uh, to know. And I see also on your website you have a list of links to a number of groups, some local in Texas and some across the uh, in other states over the U.S. that certainly I think people should take a look at. Um, in regards to food safety, I know another big thing in the news recently was uh, Alvin Schlengen being found not guilty. He's a, Alvin Schlengen was a raw dairy farmer in Wisconsin, or no, Minnesota, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how do you think this affects the raw milk movement of his verdict? I mean, so um, Alvin's case is very interesting. He actually, he's an egg farmer who was distributing raw milk from another farm and through a membership organization. And this was the first case about a membership organization that went in front of a jury. And so 
you know, as far as legal precedent, it, it's not a legal precedent for anyone other than Alvin. I mean, it doesn't apply outside of his case in terms of precedent. But it tells us something about how six normal human beings in America look at this issue. You know, these, these folks weren't, the people on the jury were not raw milk drinkers. You know, they were not small farm advocates. They were six people drawn from the jury pool in Minnesota. And they found Alvin not guilty on criminal charges of, you know, basically there were several criminal charges that had to do ultimately about simply not having the correct licenses is a lot of what it boiled down to, um, or not correct, the, the, the state licenses. Um, and, you know, the testimony at the trial was very much about this was a membership organization. The people involved understood everything involved. You know, there was, there was no hint of people not being informed. Everybody knew what they were getting into. Everybody signed up. It was members only. It was not open to the general public. Uh, and, you know, six Minnesota folks said, that's not a crime. <laughs> you know, we're not, you know, the, the, we're not going to say it's a crime for you to distribute raw milk in this kind of a situation. So I think it's, um, it, it's an encouraging piece that it's not just those of us who are advocates for, for local foods and raw milk who can look at things and say, you know, at some point, you know, state regs may have their place. And, and if you're buying in a grocery store, I think state regs have a big place. But at some point, state regs may be, don't apply. Maybe this is a situation where we don't need the government involved. So it, it's an encouraging development. And we'll see what happens the next time a case like that comes in front of a jury. I agree, because also he does have another case in another county with a jury, so we'll see. But certainly... This was very encouraging. Well, it's been great having you on our show. We have to go to our desserts in a second. But before we go to that, please give us the address once again of where we can find your site. So um, our website is farmandranchfreedom.org. That's all spelled out, farmandranchfreedom.org. All right. Well, Judith, it's been great having you on our show and look forward to seeing you at the Wise Traditions Conference in November. Now we've got to go to our desserts. And now for our desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. Tomorrow in L.A. is Sick La Via, where the streets in downtown L.A. will only allow people to walk, skate, play, and bike on them. The Yes on Prop 37 campaign will be there to tell you all you need to know about why to vote for Prop 37 in November. Volunteers will be handing out flyers, plus there will be Aztec dancers. For more information about the streets where Sick La Via is held, Go to their website at siclavia.org. That's C-I-C-L-A-V-I-A dot org. Also, Gordon Ramsay has a new restaurant at the Grove called Fat Cow. His restaurant serves many sustainable farm-fresh items such as a grass-fed flat iron steak and a grilled organic sa- salmon. And finally, there's a new feature documentary that you can rent or purchase online called Staten Nation. Director Justin Smith debunks the diet heart hypothesis that saturated fat leads to heart disease and talks about the dangers of these cholesterol-lowering statin drugs. To view the topic, go to the website statinnation.net. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. Next week, I continue my Wise Tradition speaker series with Brandon Sherd, the Farmstead Meatsmith. To find out more about my news stories, my guests, and the events happening this week, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.blogspot.com.